This is Melissa Lau, Associate Pastor of Congregational Care and Missions at Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church. Thank you for subscribing to our podcast. Throughout January, we will be exploring a biblical approach to the usage of the Enneagram for our spiritual formation. Please jump in and learn along with us as we go on this transformative journey. Thanks again for listening. God bless. Well, many of you got a postcard in the mail. Today is the beginning of a new sermon series we were doing called Find Your Design in 2021. And uh, if you want to go deeper with that, we're offering resources at wesleymemorial.org. Books we're recommending, online tests you can take. Also, a Zoom class if you want to go deeper with this, because what we're really talking about is sanctification. And what that is a big fancy word for is just growing in holiness as Christians. And so you're going to hear about this a lot throughout January and how God has designed us and that we have a self to lose and a self to find. And um, so we're, we're talking about, in a very short period of time, we're talking about a very long process, lifelong process in a few weeks. So to go a little bit deeper, we do encourage you to go on this uh, weekly Zoom conversation that Pastor Melissa will be doing. You can email her and, and she'll send you the Zoom link. We have over 20 people already signed up for that. And it's open to anybody to go in that just want a deeper conversation about what we're going to be looking at. So there is a divine uniqueness to each of us. And so we're going to do a few experiments this morning to show the reality of that. So even though we're all wearing masks, or if you're at home, you're wearing pajamas without a mask on, we're a little bit jealous of you right now. Um, We're going to do this, okay? Everyone start humming. Just hum. Come on, do it. Okay. For any guests that are here, we are not a cult. We are not weirdos. But what you're noticing about the humming is that everyone does it in their own way. Everyone has their own tone, their own pitch, their own timbre of your voice. Even how, if you haven't seen anybody in years, you pick up the phone, you know exactly who they are based on their voice. Isn't that amazing? There's this uniqueness to how we're designed. Or you look at, go look at your hand, look at your fingerprints, even your palm print is unique to you. How incredible is that? You are, there's not another you that has ever been made or will ever be made. And of course, your eye, they just, you can't look at your own eye, that'd be, that'd be a trip, but at least not, not without a mirror. Um, the uniqueness of your eye, even Charles Darwin admitted that it's ridiculous to assume that national, natural selection could create the miracle of vision and the uniqueness of each of our eyes and how, what they can do. Thomas Akempis in The Imitation of Christ said that humble knowledge of thyself is a surer way to God than a deep search after learning. That the more we become in in touch with the way we are designed, the more it points to a great designer. And it shows the, the, the miraculous aspect of who we are, that we do have a self to find, a design of ourselves to find, but we also have one to lose that we should leave behind, and we'll hear about this in a little while. So we have this divine uniqueness that all of us carry, whether religious people or not, everyone is divine, and I mean, has a divine uniqueness in how they're created by God. But despite that, many people go through life with zero awareness of that, with zero awareness of that humble knowledge to God and self-awareness. It reminds me of a story of a man who was driving to, on Interstate 40 between here and Winston-Salem. And he was going down Interstate 40. He got pulled over by a police officer. 
And the police officer said, sure, sir, do you know how fast you were going? And the man said, yes, I know how fast I was going. I saw the speed limit sign right there. It said 40. I'm going 40 miles an hour. The police officer said, sir, that's the interstate sign. You're going too slow. It's dangerous. You could kill someone going 40 miles an hour on Interstate 40. The man had passengers in the back seat, and when he turned around, the police officer looked at them, and they were white with fear. And, and the police officer said, what's wrong with these people? And the man said, oh, I just got off Highway 311. <laughs> so we have this zero awareness about the divine aspect of how God has created us. Now, there are ways to come in touch with that. Many of us have taken the Myers-Briggs test. We know that we're an IN whatever, ENFP or whatever it could be, introvert, extrovert. We get these tools available to us. Do you want to know what my uh, personality type is? I'm an ESPN. It's true. ESPN. Used it yesterday, actually. No, actually, actually last summer I was a VBS. I had a VBS, a big case of VBS. No, I'm actually um, INFJ. And so, and I'm barely on the I and E. I could really vacillate between the two. But I know that about myself that in order to get recharged and to love people better, I do need time alone to do that. In order, once you know that about myself, I'm able to kind of be more fruitful. You kind of know your limits, know your gauges, right? Know what you're capable of. And so, the more you know the design of which you're made, it's, it's a key to success in life is knowing what you can do and what you can't do. Like just yesterday, I took my son to his first basketball game of the year. Thank God we can play youth basketball again. They have to wear masks, but at least they got to play. And if you know my son, he's nine, but he's like five foot one. He's really big and strong. And I said, buddy, you do what the other kids can't do. Block shots, rebound, and do that job that no other, other kids can't do. They'll do all the faster razzle-dazzle stuff. You do what you can do, and he did it. We all have a role to play. We all have a design that we fit to, that we can serve and use our gifts in. So the point of this sermon series is not just to find out a bit more about how we're designed and think, well, there's that, there's that, and sort of leave it on the desk, leave it on the shelf, and walk away from it. Because we have to accept human reality and human design for what it is, that there is a self to lose. There's a self about us that we should lose. We should walk away from. There's also a self about us that we can find. That's, that's how God has made us. And, um, that, but the, the beauty of what we're going to look at is that it doesn't just focus on the positive aspects of human personality, but it focuses on the dark side as well. That is, we all know is there. And it, there's, there's an aspect of every human being that has to be redeemed. And that's a huge part of Christianity is this idea, again, of sanctification, of being made holy, as Wesleyan Christians, that's a huge part of our heritage of growing in holiness. There is a self to lose and a self to find. Because if you take these uh, personality tests and all this stuff out of context, it can turn into a lot of navel-gazing. It can turn into a bit of narcissism and self-centeredness. But, the, but of course, we don't want to do that. We're going to be looking at it in a way that when we see our design, it points to the grand designer and what he has uh, created you to do and to be. So the real question is, is human nature meant to be something that is only affirmed? Or is it meant to be something that has to be redeemed? Are we all good, all bad, or somewhere in the middle? Because we believe as Christians, the image of God, the imago Dei on each of us, has been damaged by sin and the fall. And so it has to be redeemed. And it can be redeemed. 
by Jesus. That John Wesley rightly believed that we could grow in, in uh, perfection in love in this life. As we get older and older and walk with Christ, we can grow in love in that way. So as we hear about this, it is good to know that yes, God loves you as you are. God loves you exactly as you are today. But that's not the whole story. That's not the whole picture of human, human nature. Yes, he loves you as you are. He loves me as I am. But he loves you too much to leave you as you are. And so there is, again, is the sanctifying grace of God being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You see this all the time in the New Testament and the Bible. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in Ephesians 4, where he said, you were taught, Paul's basically saying to the church in Ephesus, he's saying, I taught you this a while ago. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. You were taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Take off the old and put on the new. What a great message for the beginning of a new year as well. Paul would go on to write about this in Colossians 3 again. But now you must get rid of all such things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your, from your mouth. There is a self to lose. Do not lie to one another seeing that you've stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator, to take off the old and, and put on the new by God's grace. So what tools can we have to know yourself deeply? Obviously, there's prayer, meditation, small groups, with other people, you're, you're really not yourself by yourself. You have to be connected to other Christians to help grow in your faith. But how can you get to know yourself deeply? One tool we're going to look at is called the Enneagram. Now you're probably thinking, any a what? Did he say enema? I'm not interested in that, buddy. But no, the Enneagram. You might think that sounds kind of new agey and weird, but it's not. It's actually quite Jesus-y in many, many ways. And its origin the Enneagram has its roots in ancient Christianity dating all the way back to the 4th century with a desert father, a monk that lived in, the, in the Eastern Christian spirituality, a man named Evagrius. And in his writings, based on scripture, came up with eight corresponding virtues and eight vices or sins um, that really gave a guide to think through spiritual formation and how to navigate this old self, new self reality of humanity. So those eight corresponding virtues and vices of the Enneagram would turn into what we know, the seven deadly sins, right? That came out in the Middle Ages. That's those vices kind of morphed into those seven deadly sins. So this is what sets the Enneagram apart, is that it acknowledges the virtue of how God has made us, but it also acknowledges the dark side, the self to lose that we need to look at. So, I've said all of that, let me warn you. If you're thinking about going on Google and searching for uh, Enneagram, you might not want to. There's a lot of weird stuff out there. There is a lot of strange stuff. Because when this came out by Evagrius in the fourth century, he didn't copyright it, it didn't get published. <laughs> so it has taken on a weird form that's way out there. We're not going there. We're going the Christian biblical way. So, um, 
stick with the books we recommend. There's an online test, as I said, at our website you can take. There's a book we're really looking at called Self to Lose and Self to Find by Marilyn Vansel. That's also on our website. Uh, to, if you want to link that to go buy it. Because the Enneagram is sort of like a surgeon's scalpel. It can heal you or it can wound you if you get it from the wrong uh, context. It can bring spiritual wholeness and insight in many ways. And it, uh, hey, I'm speaking from experience. When I was hearing about all this stuff a long time ago, a few years ago, I just thought it's all snake oil. Like I'm not, this just sounds like a bunch of hooey to me. But the more I read about it, I'm honest, it was really true. I mean, it really nailed me with my sort of design and my personality. Because when we use this as it's intended, it's something that the church for over 2,000 years has been using and spiritual directors, Christian spiritual directors, have been using for hundreds of years. So it does have a lot of value. And as I go on to this, I'm going to give credit to Jim White at Mecklenburg Community Church. He did a sermon on this many years ago that I'm drawing from, so I want to say that and appreciate Jim down in Charlotte. So let me show you a picture of the Enneagram. The Enneagram is called that because of the way it's drawn. Ennea means nine, and gram means drawing. It's a nine-pointed geometric figure with nine different points, but they're interconnected of personality types. So there's what it looks like. So you may see that and go, whoa, 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 that's a pentagram. But no, it's not. It's an enneagram. Each point refers to one of the nine personality types. So with the Myers-Briggs, you could talk, talk about ENTP or INTJ. With, with the enneagram, you talk about a one or a six or a seven. Not one is better than the other. They're just different. And the lines between those numbers are the two personality types that often go along with your dominant one. So I'm a nine. I'm a, with a one wing. We'll get into that in a minute. So my points down to nine, six, and three. Um, because there's obviously more layers to the onion, if you will, of human personality than just nine. There's a bit more variance and really beauty to how we're designed. So, but the, the, the points that connect to your personality types are the ones that you run to during times of stress or uh, security. So here are the nine types and their brief descriptions that I'm going to read off, really. Type one is the reformer. Some call it the perfectionist. They're ethical. Now, as I'm reading these, feel free to jot down the one that really resonates with you. If you really feel like, hey, that, that you know, Take a few notes to see what you really feel like is yours. Number Type one, they're ethical, they're dedicated, they're reliable. They're motivated by a desire to live the right way, to improve the world, and to avoid fault and blame. Type two is the helper. They are warm, caring, and giving, motivated by the need to be loved and needed and to avoid acknowledging their own needs. Type three is the achiever or the performer. They're success-oriented, image-conscious, and wired for productivity, and they are motivated by a need to be or appear to be successful and to avoid failure. Type four is the individualist or romantic. They are creative, sensitive, and moody. They are motivated by a need to be understood and experience their oversized feelings and avoid being ordinary. Type five is the investigator. They're analytical, detached, and private. They are motivated by a need to gain knowledge, conserve energy, and avoid relying on others. Type six is the loyalist, committed, practical, and witty. 
They are worst case scenario thinkers who are motivated by fear and the need for security. Type seven is the enthusiast. Fun, spontaneous, and adventurous, they are motivated by a need to be happy, to plan stimulating experiences, and to avoid them. Type eight is the challenger. Commanding, intense, and confrontational, they are motivated by a need to be strong and to avoid feeling weak or vulnerable. And finally, type nine is the peacemaker. Pleasant, laid back, and accommodating, they are motivated by a need to keep the peace, merge with others, and avoid conflict. Now again, those numbers do not typify one person completely. That's why they have this thing called wings. So I, you, you can wing either to one side or the other. Go back to the, yeah, that one. So I'm a nine, and so I wing, you can wing either to the ones next to you, eight or one for me. When I took the test, I leaned toward the one. So if you're a nine with a one wing, you're not just a peacemaker and only sort of wanting peace, but you're, you're a bit more of, you do have a deep sense of right and wrong and ethics and also wanting to be diplomatic um, and at the same time. So there's this, there's a give you a bit more of the nuance of how we're designed um, by God. So I know you're chomping at the bit. You're dying to know what type am I? I cannot tell you that right now, but what I can do is do a quick essential test that while you're listening to it, you can write down if you feel like you're one of these paragraphs, or maybe just to create a top three that you feel like is you. Now, this is not the test. You can go online and take a better one, again, on our website to get a better idea. So I'm going to read these, and as I'm reading, see which one connects with you. There are no special order, um, and then at the end, we'll show you which one is which type. So type, the first one I'm going to read is A. I have high internal standards for correctness, and I expect myself to live up to those standards. It's easy for me to see what's wrong with things as they are and to see how they could be improved. I may come across to some people as overly critical or demanding perfection, but it's hard for me to ignore or accept things that are not done the right way. I pride myself on the fact that I'm responsible for doing something you can be sure I'll do it right. I sometimes have feelings of resentment when people don't try to do things properly or when people act irresponsibly or unfairly, even though I usually try not to show it to them openly. For me, it is usually work before pleasure, and I suppress my desires as necessary to get the work done. B, I am sensitive to other people's feelings. I can see what they need even when I don't know them. Sometimes it's frustrating to be so aware of people's needs especially their pain or unhappiness, because I'm not able to do as much for them as I'd like. It's easy for me to give of myself. I sometimes wish I were better at saying no, but I end up putting more energy into caring for others than into taking care of myself. It hurts my feelings if people think I'm trying to manipulate or control them, when all I'm trying to do is understand and help them. I like to be seen as a warm-hearted and good person, but when I'm not taken into account or appreciated, I can become very emotional or even demanding. Good relationships mean a great deal to me, and I'm willing to work hard to make them happen. So there's a second one. See if you connect with this third one. Being the best at what I do is a strong motivator for me, and I've received a lot of recognition over the years for my accomplishments. I get a lot done, and I'm successful in almost everything I take on. I identify strongly with what I do. Because to a large degree, I think your value is based on what you accomplish and the recognition you get. I always have more to do than will fit into the time available. 
So I often set aside feelings and self-reflection in order to get things done. Because there's always something to do, I find it hard just to sit and do nothing. I get impatient with people who don't use my time well. Sometimes I would rather just take over a project if someone is going too slow. I like to feel and appear on top of any situation. While I like to compete, I'm also a good team player. Here's the fourth one. I'm a sensitive person with intense feelings. I often feel misunderstood and lonely because I feel different from everybody else. My behavior can appear like drama to others, and I've been criticized for being oversensitive and overamplifying my feelings. What is really going on inside is my longing for both emotional connection and a felt experience of relationship. I have truly difficulty, truly appreciating relationships because of my tendency to want what I can't have and to disdain what I do have. The search for emotional connection has been with me all my life, and the absence of emotional connection has led to melancholy and depression. I sometimes wonder why other people seem to have more than I do, better relationships and happier lives. I have a refined sense of aesthetics, and I experience a rich world of emotions and meaning. The next one, I would characterize myself as a quiet, analytical person who needs more time alone than most people do. I usually prefer to observe what is going on rather than be involved in the middle of it. I don't like people to place too much demands on me and to expect me to know and report what I'm feeling. I'm able to get in touch with my feelings better than alone than with others. And I often enjoy experiences I've had more when reliving them than when actually going through them. I'm almost never bored when alone because I have an active mental life. It is important for me to protect my time and energy and hence to live a simple, uncomplicated life and to be as self-sufficient as possible. F, I have a vivid imagination, especially when it comes to what might be threatening to safety and security. I can usually spot what could be dangerous or harmful and may experience as much fear as if it were really happening. I either always avoid danger or always challenge it head on. My imagination always leads to my ingenuity and a good, if somewhat offbeat, sense of humor. I would like for life to be more certain, but in general, I seem to doubt the people and things around me. I can usually see the shortcomings in the view someone is putting forward. I suppose that as a consequence, some people may consider me to be very astute. I tend to be suspicious of authority, and I'm not particularly comfortable being seen as the authority. Because I can see what is wrong with the generally held view of things, I tend to identify with underdog causes. Once I've committed myself to a person or a cause, I am very loyal to it. G. I'm an optimistic person who enjoys coming up with new and interesting things to do. I have a very active mind that quickly moves back and forth between different ideas. I like to get a global picture of how all these things fit together. And I get excited when I can connect concepts that initially don't appear to be related. I like to work on things that interest me, and I have a lot of energy to devote to them. I have a hard time sticking with unrewarding and repetitive tasks. I like to be in on the beginning of a project, during the planning phase, when there may be many interesting options to consider. When I have exhausted my interest in something, it is difficult for me to stay with it because I want to move on to the next thing that has captured my interest. If something gets me down, something gets me down, I prefer to shift my attention to more pleasant ideas. I believe people are entitled to an enjoyable life. H, thank you for your patience as I keep reading. I approach things in an all or nothing way, especially issues that matter to me. 
I place a lot of value on being strong, honest, and dependable. What you see is what you get. I don't trust others until they have proven themselves to be reliable. I like people to be direct with me, and I know when someone is being devious. Trying or lying or trying to manipulate me. I have a hard time tolerating weakness in people unless I understand the reason for their weakness or I see that they're trying to do something about it. I also have a hard time following orders or directions if I do not respect or agree with the person in authority. I am much better at taking charge myself. I find it difficult not to display my feelings when I'm angry. I am always ready to stick up for friends or loved ones, especially if I think they're being treated unjustly. I may not win every battle with others, but they'll know I've been there. And finally, I. I seem to be able to see all points of view pretty easily. I may even appear indecisive at times because I can, take, I can see advantages and disadvantages on all sides. The ability to see all sides makes me good at helping people resolve their differences. This same ability can sometimes lead me to be more aware of other people's positions, agendas, and personal priorities than of my own. It is not unusual for me to become distracted and then to get off task on the important things I'm trying to do. When this happens, my attention is often diverted to unimportant, trivial tasks. I have a hard time knowing what is really important to me, and I avoid conflict by going along with what others want. People tend to consider me to be an easygoing, pleasing, and agreeable. It takes a lot to get me to the point of showing my anger directly at someone. I like life to be comfortable, harmonious, and others to be accepting of me. Okay, we made it. Here we go. Here's the answers for each thing you heard. I laid them out right in order for you, actually. <laughs> so if you resonate with that last one I just read, type I, or letter I, then maybe you're a type nine. That was me, which is the peacemaker. Um, whatever letter, which one I read, you are that potentially that type, but this is not an official test. Um, so please check that out online. Next week, we're going to look at these types Bring back up the picture of the types again um, and how each type has a center. There's three centers to each one, again, to show a different layer of our personality. And what a center is, we'll look at next week, is motivations. What are the motivations behind what we do? Why do we do what we do? Particularly when we're under stress or duress of some kind um, that we lean toward. So um, we'll look at that next week, the centers on the motivations that maybe how God has designed us. And we'll also look at next week how Jesus was somebody who was perfectly centered in that his motivations were always in line with God's will. And he always followed perfectly what he needed to do, and what God wanted him to do. And if we're following Jesus, let's look to him as one who is perfectly centered as well in our model uh, and guide. And then in week three of this, we're going to look at the signature sins that each type of personality can have a certain um, signature, not just one sin, but one that you could lean toward, again, in times of stress or uh, difficulty. So that'll be the, the third week, which will be really cool to look at. But as we look at all of this, I wanted to close with this statement, though, that especially in the time in which we're living, the world is not going to believe in Christ um, because of a sound theology or a really slick production value or the size of a budget or if we say the creed the right way 
or any of that, I, people will start to believe in Christ when they see Christ's likeness continue to be birthed in our lives and made evident in our lives. Um, the more people see you being salt and light, the more people see you stepping into how God has designed you, the more we lose the self we need to lose and, and claim the, the, the godly aspect that God wants to lay upon us and give us that new mantle, that new garment, as Paul would say, of Christ. The more we do that, the more people see that, hey, there is something different about you. There's something you have that I don't have. Not that we're definitely not better than other people, but we're simply people that have come to know Christ, and we've come to know the goodness of who he is. And the more we grow in that knowledge and righteousness of who he is, more people will, I think their eyes will be opened, and they'll see that there's something you have that I need. So as we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to close us with a prayer. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the way you have designed each of us, that every person here, every person listening, we all have this divine uniqueness that you've made us. And God, that many times we don't claim it, we don't step into the newness of life you offer to us. So God, I pray today now that you do give us joy in a dry and dusty land, God. Give us your peace. Give us a sense of healing and hope. Open our eyes to see the, the beautiful ways you have designed each of us that no one else has. We have something unique to offer the world. So God, let us be reminded that you've not given us, given us a spirit of fear, but you've given us a spirit of perseverance and of not shrinking back. Let us step into this new year with newness of life, a, a resurgence of purpose as we follow you. Guide us in wisdom in these weeks to come and see, God, maybe how you're challenging us and shaping and molding us to become the people you've called us to be. As we run this race, God, you will help us run it with perseverance. And I, God, I believe after, after this series, God, you're going to have, people are going to have a, a renewed sense of who you've made them to be, that, God, we are, in fact, who you say we are. Not who the world says we are, the negative labels that people have attached to us, but who you say we are. Let us claim those things. That we are redeemed sons and daughters of God, greatly loved from now into eternity. So God, as we stand together and we sing together, God, we claim, God, who you say we are and, and celebrate that today, God. So let us stand and sing together this morning.